Hello, and welcome to the Talking Techniques podcast, the show that brings you the latest from the frontiers of life science, straight from the people exploring them. I'm your host, Biotechniques Digital Editor, Tristan Free, and in this podcast, I'll explore the latest developments from across the life sciences, speak to leaders in their field, and people who can provide new perspectives on established topics, while examining how we can advance in the most ethical and progressive ways. Welcome back to part two of this episode with Donald Ingber, founding director of the Wies Institute. In the last episode, we discussed Donald's development of organ-on-a-chip models, before looking at how he is integrating them into the Wies Institute's response to COVID-19. At the end of the last episode, we were discussing the benefits of organ-on-a-chip tech over animal models, before I asked him the question that I will pose at the beginning of this episode. This led to a fascinating discussion about the conservatism of the scientific community, from academics to publishers, and Donald's opinions on how to overcome these issues and how the crisis of coronavirus is bringing some of his suggestions to the fore already, accelerating the pace of scientific progress. If you haven't listened to the first episode, I recommend you listen to it before this one, but it's not 100% necessary. And now, on with the podcast. Okay, so you, you've touched on it there, but um, what other areas do you think um, might account for why there, there has been such a, a slow uptake in some areas of life sciences um, for using organ-on-a-chip technology as opposed to animal models? I mean, the slowest area is academics, where, you know, most labs will always do what they've always done. And, and, and you know, the benchmark is a mouse model. And they've developed engineered mouse models. And, you know, and that is you have to prove that you can replicate it in their mouse models. So it's, people joke that, you know, reviewer number three always asks to do a mouse model. And, uh, and the fact is that, um, you know, there are many cases, like take Alzheimer's disease, where all of the predictions from the mouse models over all of those years have failed every single time when it comes into the clinical trial. Uh, and, uh, and there are many other examples of this. Uh, and so I think this is just the way academia works is that, you know, um, people will be skeptical about changing the way they do things. I mean, it's, I watch this every time we try to publish, publish a paper, you know, uh, that people are more interested, uh, in science, people tend to be focused more on a reductionist, like, you know, the area that their expertise is on when they re- review a paper or a grant and saying, well, you know, you haven't done this single part of it any, any differently than we did that particular part of it before. But, and another reviewer will say their part of it. It's not that different. The point is that no one is, it, these models allow you to do all of these different assessments that others do at the same time under uh, in a human relevant model while mimicking clinical human clinical results as opposed to mouse results you know it, this is just the way science works it's a very conservative business one of the most amazing things about the covid-19 uh crisis is that people are just putting their results up on the web and then in a matter of days to weeks, other people are repeating it or showing it's not right. And there's this dynamic discussion. Science is moving at a warp speed, whereas it would take my own work, it takes years to get these papers published because the reviewers will, will come up with these 
you know, criticisms, and this happens to all people in science in their own field, by the way, it just takes years to get published, and you go from journal to journal to journal, and in the end, it gets published in a good journal, but it, but it's just you have to get the right set of two reviewers and editor. It's it's a crazy, it's a broken business in my view in terms of getting science out there. Groups like the Gates Foundation can't understand why scientists put up with this and and, and view it as slowing the progressive science. So when they fund you, they want you to put your journals out in you know uh, public access journals. But even those journals take a while to, to go through the review process. And realize you just the review processes are just two scientists who may be competitors or have a very narrow narrow viewpoint. And I think the COVID nineteen crisis is starting to get it out there. And if two other groups or more groups repeated, it, it's real. If they don't, you'll very quickly find out that it was not real. But the chloroquine is, you know, they they published a paper with something like six people. It was politicians who push that to, to say that, you know, this is the be-all be and end-all. The scientists all said, well, it's interesting, we should consider it, but let's get some more data. And, you know, it, 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 to me, this has been one of the most interesting learnings from the COVID-19 crisis is that how broken the scientific communication, publication, review system is, and how it holds back the advance of science. I can see the uh, how rapidly things are progressing now. Um, there was an example I think I read recently that um, Mercedes, the uh, F1, um, the F1 engineering company, um, recently managed to develop a continuous positive airway pressure device which assists patients with their breathing, um, and that was then approved um, by regulatory bodies for use in medical practices um, within a few weeks. It, which is something that would normally take millions of pounds and, and lots and lots of um, review stages and would, would obviously be delayed. Um, and you've raised the point there um, about uh, delays with academic academics, but then also coming from, from publishers. Um, and as, as someone who's representing a uh, publishing house, um, I guess I should now ask you, what advice would you give um, sort of me and my colleagues as publishers to, to help accelerate that pace um, and prevent that sort of conservative bias within the science? I want to just respond about your Mercedes comment because, you know, it, it has been absolutely amazing that um, people have put up on the web or published by archive papers and med archive papers that go up in, within two days methods that how to, you know, how to make 3D print something that can put two patients or four patients on the same ventilator or make a nasopharyngeal swab, or or you make an N95 mask, or make a make a make a you know a helmet type of a shield, um, and then other people around the world within days are making iterations on that. Now, if you had to publish a paper on that in before COVID-19, it would take a year to get it out if you're lucky, and it probably would say it's not novel and people know how to make 90 N95 masks right now. I have been trying to get, get papers published on influenza modeling in four journals and still have not done that. I put it up on BioArchive a year ago because I thought it was important, but all the reviewers don't see the importance of that. That was before COVID-19. I'll see how they respond afterwards. But the whole idea was having models to speed up response to the pandemic, right? But but that's not of interest to a reviewer who works on a very narrow aspect of of um, how viral replication works, for example. 
example. Um, and, and so, you know, Mercedes was able to make an advance really quickly, building on knowledge, I'm sure, that was shifting around the web. And, you know, and, and it should be shifting around scientific journals, too. Now, you ask how journals could, could change that. I mean, I really think that um, the question is, uh, you know, why not put it up? If people all over the world are putting up papers when they submit them now through bioarchives and medarchives. I'm doing it on every paper. So it's out there already, and that's great. But, you know, why not leverage that it's out there, see how people respond on the web as part of the review process, and 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 maybe have the review not focus on every little point on the paper, but the major issues where the concerns are, and, and then, you know, just save a lot of time by just focusing on the key points and not requiring more and more experiments because, uh, you know, most young people don't have the funding to do the levels of more mouse studies or other types of experiments, and maybe the paper should just get out there so people could build on it and someone else could do that next set of studies. But when I was a young person, a graduate student and a postdoc, papers in journals like Science and Nature had four figures with one graph each or a picture or two of A, B, C, D. Now all of us have to have supplementary materials with 13 to 20 figures on top of the four to five in the paper, all of which go through A through K. It, it takes a long time, a lot of money. It's unfair to young people. And, you know, and people wait for the complete story for two to three years. And that holds up the advance of science, in my view. That, that That's just my opinion. So the incorporation of the the response to a bioarchive article could could be an interesting step to to try and accelerate that and in, in, and change and alternate the the review process. Um, from my opinion, um, the the idea of not having it comprehensively reviewed and having each point examined could could that not lead to a sort of slight dangers in the research or um, uh, sort of situations where the the research becomes how can you make the most impactful statements without them being backed up by the the minute detail which is often required which whilst hinders the progress in terms of the speed does make sure that everything is sort of ironclad in terms of the, the safety so uh, the first the false assumption is that having two reviewers who are specialists in a field um, makes things ironclad. The second is that no matter what you and I say, all of the papers are going out in bioarchives right now. So, the, so my view is I have I share concerns with you about things getting out there and just being taken as as fact and and validated. And I think that you know it needs to be clear that these papers are preliminary results. But the only no matter what you publish in your journal or or any journal in the world that has the best reviewers, it's only when others repeat that and get the same results and then build on it that the field moves forward. The best journals have papers that were turned out to be wrong that other people couldn't repeat. And and so it really comes down to, do other scientists find it useful and, and validate it with a follow-up paper? And if you could do that equally quickly, because you're only doing posting it on the web as soon as you get your results, then that is, the, I think that validates it more than having two individuals do it or who might be your competitor or the, 
or want to, you know, want to hold that back until they, because they have something else going on, or they just want to see a more thorough story because that they want to see the complete story before it can go out. I understand the concerns about this, but it's happening already. I mean, so really now the question is, how do you develop a, a, a journal publication system that accepts the reality that that's going out really fast and that people are reading it and citing them? And that, um, you know, how do we promote something that would be a validation system of that, a review system of that as quickly as possible, or maybe a critique system of that? So I, I'm not trying to say that just putting it out, put all the data out there on its own is sufficient. I still go and get it peer-reviewed as well. I'm just saying that that peer-review process is often more destructive, especially to young people, than it is constructive. Yeah, so it's it's fascinating to hear the the difference from to just just hear this from a different perspective. Um, and I completely get your point, and I I completely agree as well. I think um, we consider um, bioarchive to be a, a hugely valuable resource, um, and I really do think that 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 idea of of incorporating the response to it and people repeating the papers and repeating the experiments um, in response to the it being posted on bioarchive. Um, is a really fascinating idea. Um, I've, never, I've never really gone through this before, but the idea of someone or some entity uh, having a follow-up of a publication, even if it is peer-reviewed, but let's say bioarchives as well, about, you know, this has been validated, like a new index that says validation index. Like this has been confirmed by two, three, four, five, six, and so on, numbers of groups around the world. This has been dis. This proves this has been prone to be not consistent and validated. I think that sort of thing would be hugely valuable. But to hold back publications for years because of nitpicky things that really, we know they're nitpicky because the same paper comes out at even sometimes in a higher impact journal three years later just because it got the right reviewers and editors. It happens all the time to everyone in science. You know, in the, before COVID-19, you could say, well, this is the way we do things. But in my view, being COVID-19, you realize just how detrimental that is to our ability to fight disease and really advance human health in the way, the best way we really could, at the pace that we really could. So when I was preparing for this, uh, this interview, the phrase, um, the interface of science and art came up quite often. What can you tell me about that? What, what does that mean to you? My scientific career was really launched on a, on a trajectory uh, when as an undergraduate student at Yale, I was literally learning how to culture cells the same week I was taking a sculpture class. And in that class, I saw a sculpture made out of sticks and strings that's, that's built using a building system called Tensegrity that comes from tensional and integrity that came out of the Buckminster Fuller School of Geodesic Dome Architecture and, and, a, and a student of his, Kenneth Nelson, who was a sculptor. And I saw this model made out of sticks and elastic strings that was round, and as the teacher spoke, he would flatten it in his hand and he'd let go and it would bounce up off the, the substrate, off the desk. And uh, it was the same week I learned how to culture cancer cells across the campus in the, in the medical school. And I was using uh, the way you culture cells is you put them on a dish, they 
stick and spread and flatten and grow. And then when you move, want to move them to another dish, you added an enzyme called trypsin that clips their anchors. And when you clip their anchors to the dish, they would round up and bounce up just like that model. And it was mid-1970s, and I, and I had just read papers that all cells have what are called a, what's called a cytoskeleton, a molecular skeleton at the nanometer scale made up of actomyosin filaments, which are the same actomyosin that creates tension in muscles. And so I, I thought what, what gives these models their stability is tension that's resisted by more solid stick-like elements. And so it's like our body with bones and muscles uh, coming into a, into a force balance, isometric tension or tone. And so I, I said, I went to the, I, w I went back to the, the medical school lab and we were using a cancer drug that caused the cells to change shape. And I said, oh, the cells' tensegrity must have changed. And the postdoc I was working with said, what did you say? And I said, the tensegrity must have changed. And he said, what is that? I said, well, I'm taking sculpture class and Buckminster Fuller and, you know, and, and, and the guy said, well, never say that again. And that basically, you know, was the beginning of the rest of my life in science. I went to the libraries at Yale, every library I could find, and I realized that this is basically how nature builds and how cells are constructed. So that was my intro into crossing the art science interface. But um, I've done many things over the years uh, that, that I, I basically feel that scientists and artists are, are closer to one another in how they approach things than uh, at least some scientists and some artists uh, than, than uh, you know, let's say scientists and physicians, and I'm an MD and a PhD. Uh, you know, it's really um, being able to, you know, conceptualize a challenge of, uh, and how to, you know, visualize that in a way, and then the artist will experimentally play to convey their view of the world with paints or, or you know, sculptural materials. The scientist uh, has their view of how things work in the world, um, and they then do experiments to actually show that, you know, whether it's right or wrong. But the, the difference about science is that whatever your view of the world is, if it works, it has to be able to predict results that other people can repeat. And, uh, but there, there's definitely the power of the gestalt, power of systems and, 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 you know, holistic viewing of, 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 of how systems work. I think art actually is, is very similar to that. Artists who really can, can do things well can communicate, you know, how, how the world works visually. I think that brings me to uh, to the end of my questions. Um, Donald, thank you so much for joining us. Do you have any final words to add? You know, I'll, I'll just say one interesting art science side is more recently we um, had a paper where we actually leveraged art in a, in, a, in a thoughtful way. We used artistic approach to advance science, which was a fellow in my lab, uh, Charles Riley, I came from uh, New Zealand. He was trained, he has a PhD in molecular biophysics and he does computational modeling of molecules, molecular dynamic simulation. But he also had worked with Peter Jackson in the film industry and he, he was a, he's a professional animator and had worked with software that the entertainment industry uses to do animation for full length feature films. And um, long story short, 
we combine some of the strengths and capabilities, which, by the way, there's a lot more investment in, in computational modeling in the entertainment industry than in science. Uh, he, he, so he combined approaches from the entertainment industry with the scientific molecular design approaches, and we actually um, showed in a series of papers that we could use that to model not only how molecules work better, but how molecules work in the context of the hierarchy of life, like how molecules work when they're part of large, larger structures uh, that are called, you know, uh, macromolecular complexes, and those work inside basically organelles and how that works inside living cells. An example we used was the human sperm, and we actually could model how sperm moves, starting with molecules of the individual motor proteins inside it. Now, what what's interesting is that we are now using that that computational design system to design therapeutics that work against influenza and SARS-CoV-2. Uh, so that's that's sort of an interesting example where we we came at this thinking that approaches from the art the art world, in this case the entertainment industry, might help us do science better, and it looks like it is. Amazing. So it's uh, interesting to hear how something that started or influenced you at the beginning of your career has now come full circle um, through another young fellow um, and might end up helping you out in this uh, in, during this crisis. Well, thank you again, Donald, and thank you so much to those um, at home or at work that are listening to this podcast. I hope that wherever you are, you're safe and well. And if you would like to hear more of our podcasts, you can find them in the podcast section of our website. Join us next month for the next edition of the Talking Techniques podcast. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and goodbye.